everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of Talk on Tech. I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. And we're here to guide you through all things IT and Mount West Community and Technical College related. Today, before we get into our stories, I have a couple of brief announcements here. Um, we are, at this point, uh, around April 16th to April 18th time period. Uh, school is winding down here at Mount West. Actually, next week for us is going to be dead week. Uh, it's usually a week reserved right before finals where students don't have to have new assignments involved. And the following week is, is a final exam. So right now I'm I'm sitting in three weeks from, from being done for the semester. <laughs> and so it's, it's really nice. It is. So basically the first week of May is when our uh, final exams are going to be. And I have some quick announcements here that would relate to students who are thinking about taking summer classes in our last I think two episodes we've talked about our summer class schedule talked about how we have a session called session summer a which runs for uh, 10 weeks and then we have a session b which runs for the first five weeks overlapping that same session a and then one that runs in the second five weeks so you could take a lot of classes what i hadn't set up until now though is of course you have to pay for those classes just because you sign up doesn't mean you're going to be in them and so I have some new late-breaking news that's three hours fresh from, uh, from <laughs> when we're talking right now. Um, payment for those classes are due May 4th. Now, to put that in perspective, May 4th is the last day of final exams for students. It's their last day here. If they don't pay what they're due for their summer classes on May 4th, Anytime paying after that, they'll be assessed a late fee. Yep. I don't have the particular late fee, but I'm imagining 25 35 bucks at least. So it's, oh, yeah. it's not like a little $5 parking ticket. So go ahead, get your things paid for ahead of time. If for some reason after that you go to pay, they are going to cut you off. Actually, the following Friday, May 11th, is the day they will drop you for non-payment, which means if you were signed up for a summer class, and it comes to be the Friday before summer classes start and you've still not paid, you are going to be dropped. And then that's going to be very difficult for you to get back down here, get re-registered, get paid for. It's a giant fiasco. So just be aware that you need to get things paid, especially before the first day of classes, because they will drop you if you haven't already paid. Mm -hmm. So that's just brand new information, late-breaking information that I want to make sure everyone knows about. Um, but now we can go ahead and get into some of our stories today. The first story I have is is actually it's a video or a little little mini documentary that um, that a person created, and the title of it is called Kane's Arcade, uh, and it's about a nine year old boy who whose dad owns a uh, auto parts store, and the person who is the, the the documentary filmmaker basically ends up being this little boy's first customer ever. This boy, it's so sweet. He makes a cardboard arcade. Like he takes cardboard boxes like you would um, as a kid, like a refrigerator box and playing house. He creates whole arcade games like maybe the type of game you would see at a Chuck E. Cheese or a, a Billy Bob's where you shoot basketballs into the, into the net. Yeah. And then they roll back down to you so you can then shoot again and shoot again and shoot again. <laughs> he manages to come up with, with amazing mechanical implementations out of just cardboard to do this he's got those grappling hook games and it's it's just it kind of relates to to in my case like kind of like steampunk tech stuff okay yeah I, I think i think it's very very creative 
So much so that just like in an old-fashioned skee-ball game, he's got the little slot where the tickets you win. You know, you win, <laughs> you win tickets, and he crawls into the game and spits the tickets out for you as oh, you wow. as you play the game. So it's a very very cute little video, um, kind of tech-related, oh, yeah. uh, kind of like uh, reverse engineering type things. <laughs> And so, a uh, very cute little story, and I've put that up there. It's it's uh, a video off of Vimeo. It's only like 10 minutes long, so give that a watch. Very, very good. Cool. Well, i got a story here about um, Sony, uh, Sony Corporation. Um, basically, the news has been lately that they're going to cut 10,000 jobs over the next uh, 12 months. And so, uh, a little summary. It says, uh, Sony only days after announcing a $6.4 billion loss uh Double its previous estimates is to shed 10,000 jobs or 6% of its workforce in the next 12 months. Um, It's basically they're refocusing, uh, readjusting their whole corporation, focusing on phones, TV, and gaming. Um, This doesn't have to do with uh, like the the video, the picture, you know, Sony pictures or anything like that. This Mm -hmm. is just their um, consumer, things like that. But um, basically, um, it was double what they thought its uh, loss was going to be, and they're restructuring and reorganizing the whole company to keep up with um, Apple and Samsung, a couple of the big big um, rivals that it has. Um, so it'd be pretty interesting to see what they end up doing because um, we were just hearing not too long ago about some things um, with Sony. Uh, opening up some things here in the United States with some jobs and different uh, different mobile things and, and digital things. So it'll be interesting to see what actually comes of this, if the reorganization actually works. Um, but still, that's a big loss. When you when you have to let go of 10,000 employees, even if it's across the globe, you know, given it is only 6% of the workforce, um, that's a lot of jobs um, that they're going to lose in a year. Right. But um, there's a lot of companies having to do that kind of thing right now. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear they're still doing the gaming. I still don't own a PlayStation 3. Yeah, I don't either. I, I've got a, a Nintendo Wii, mm-hmm. which I don't hardly even play it. You gotta, like The last game I bought for that was the new Zelda when it came out. And then past that, wow, it, it was years before. But really, my mainstay is an Xbox 360. Yeah. But um, I, I was really scratching my head recently. They released a, a tablet called the Sony Tablet P. Mm-hmm. And... It was the weirdest looking thing in the world. Because when I think of tablet, yep. I think of like an iPad yeah. or or a Galaxy, okay. something yeah. like yeah, that. Something like okay. This thing, if you think of like an a Nintendo DS, which that was like their dual screen kind of clam yeah. clam style, uh, clam shell type closing, the Sony one looked like that. It has okay. about an inch border around the outside, so when it opens up, it's about the size of an iPad. Okay. But for some reason, there's a giant clip in the middle. And you're looking at two different screens. So it's only the same screen size as like a Samsung Galaxy Tab. And when I looked at it, I mean, I think Gizmodo had an article for it. I was just like, this is hideous. Yeah. I mean, they have, they already have the PSP. If you're going to go gaming, they have the PSP and they yeah. have that thing. What's the new one called? The Vita. The, the Vita. Oh, Vita. yeah. Because they also had the Go in the middle. Yeah. So I don't understand. I don't understand what they were trying to reach with this. So I don't know either. I mean, one of the big they said one of the one of the problems that they were having was that they had such poor reception from the PlayStation Vita. Um, 
handheld market wise the ds or 3ds you know that mm-hmm. whole nintendo still owns that entire market <clears throat> even if the playstation brand can ho- offer higher graphics and things right they're you know because of the price and things like that you know and and you don't see very many late teens you know uh, young adults with playstation vitas you know they're sticking with with their you know ds's and things like that and then the younger kids as well well i even think they had a problem originally with the psp when mm-hmm. it came out i mean yeah. i think they struggled for market share well, and then and, and then also their their type of cartridges yeah, they used yeah and i mean that you know they were they were putting movies out on them and that was a big flop they thought mm-hmm. well we'll get some you know more kids to watch it or you know use them and the screen size doesn't help at all but I've seen it. I've heard like good things about the Vita, but mm-hmm. majority of people just don't want to buy it because they already own like a, a, a you know a Nintendo DS or something like that. And they don't want to spend that money on right on that thing. But which I mean, you know it seems odd to yeah, a, to a degree to a degree because the PlayStation Three does quite mm-hmm. well. Yes, and Mario is on Nintendo, mm-hmm. and PlayStation has their own franchise style games. Yeah, and you think just simply bringing those to a portable. Exactly. Would would justify. Yeah. Well, that's why, like, the the only reason at this point that I would buy a PlayStation is for its PlayStation-only titles at that point. I mean, I, I right. like my Xbox, and, um, but, you know, that's where they're, they're having issues with um, their televisions and everything now because the television markets went up and everything like that. So wow. they're just not, they're not making enough money. Hmm. So. Wow. But that's, that's an interesting tech story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have one that um, I have to say it frustrates me to no end. Um, Microsoft has just recently announced that they are releasing a new uh, certification program overhaul that relates to cloud computing. And the part of this that really, really frustrates me, it takes a little backstory. Microsoft, when I think it was 1993, they started their Microsoft Certified Professional Program people were able to start to get certified on at the time windows nt351 that -hmm. was what it was out at the time and then later nt4 then 2000 i jumped on board in the nt4 era but basically you were an mcp a microsoft certified professional or you later became an mcse a microsoft certified systems engineer so from 1993 all the way up to roughly 2008 you had a certification that people knew and understood yes like I mean, even even walking down the street, a CEO that knows nothing about technology, they would know what that acronym stood for. And then Microsoft up and changed the whole thing with their server 2008 when they said, we're no longer doing the MCSE. We're now going to create a new uh, communi- or a, a new certification program called the Microsoft Certified IT Professional. Okay. So MCITP. Okay. A lot of people are really ticked off at saying, you know, you're going to give me a certification that no one's going to know what it means. Yeah. And I, and I do hear that from my students. They, yeah. they say, I have to tell people it's the MCSE on 2008. Yeah. But, you know, I tow the Microsoft line and say, fine, eventually people will recognize. Well, on April 12th, there was a story released where Microsoft is now in the process of creating some cloud certifications. Okay. And guess what they're bringing back? No idea. The MCSE. But it's not the Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. You're a Microsoft Certified Solutions Engineer, which is confusing. Oh, wow. All get out to me. And so if you, I mean, 
I've spent the last couple days trying to look on Microsoft's site about this. Microsoft says this is not the MCSE of old. This is going to be a certification that's going to be based off of people who know how to install technologies in the cloud or locally as well. So it doesn't sound like it's necessarily a server-based thing. Yeah. Even then, they used to have a certification that was called the uh, the MCSD, the Microsoft Certified Software Developer. Okay. okay. Now it's a solutions developer. And so they're trying to make it vague. They still have the MCITP. Yeah. So I just, I'm really, really, really confused and angry right now by the fact that Microsoft just completely did their own thing. They went away from the MCSE. People tried to say don't do it. And now it's like they're trying to reuse that acronym for something yeah. else now. It's going to confuse everybody. It's gonna, Yeah, it's going to confuse everybody. I'm I already confused. I mean, <laughs> I don't think your brand stays strong if there's market confusion. Exactly. And so I, I think it's going to start to devalue the certification. So they haven't actually released how the whole thing is going to shake out. But at this point, they, they flat out say on their website, if you look at the FAQ, they say this is now the new MCSE. The old MCSE stood for um, the Server 2003 certification. This is not that. Okay. If you want to be Server 2008 certified, you get an MCITP. I mean, it just... I just well, it's going to confuse not just the people trying to get the certifications exams, but all these employers that are hiring people. I think that's the you worst know when people. they put mm-hmm. MCSE on there, or whatever, <clears> and they they if they don't spell it out and they don't ask or they don't know to ask, you're going to be hiring the wrong person. Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest hurtful area is going to be the employer side. Yes, because an individual, if they want the certification, they will do the due diligence exactly. to figure it out. But when you walk into an employee's uh, employer's office and and you have to explain your resume to them, mm-hmm. if they had read someone else had an MCSC, yeah, and they're not up to date to know what that even means now, they may on just their their own non techie understanding and opinion mm-hmm. hire the wrong person exactly because it it's really not their job to have to know what all that stuff is. It's yeah. our job as the IT people. And so I think Microsoft is really going to shoot a lot of uh, a, a lot of employers in the foot because the employers aren't going to be able to have the time or the patience to understand all these changes they're doing. Yeah. So that's a very it's a very frustrating article for me, especially as as a Microsoft certified person. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got a little bit of a follow up story here. Uh, a couple weeks back, we were talking about um, Facebook basically threatening lawsuits um, against companies for asking uh, for your Facebook username, password, you know, information like that. And, you know, we could... Really and they th- were they were going to threaten to sue you, yeah, the and user. Yeah, f- you, the user, for giving up that information, you were breaking their terms of agreement as well. Mm-hmm. So um, we really didn't see much else about it at that point because it's still kind of in the process. They're kind of like threw that threat out there. Right. But we did see where there were some states that were talking about passing, um, passing bills and laws to prevent the employers from asking for that stuff. Right. So it says, um, article here says, uh, Maryland first to ban employers asking for your Facebook password. It says, Maryland will soon become the first state to ban the practice of employers asking current employees as well as job applicants for access to their social media accounts such as on Facebook. So they're going to do all social media accounts. So if you have Twitter, different things like that, any social media 
It says it's Bill SB43 and HB964 encompasses more than just Facebook. It targets employers from requesting access to all social media accounts of current employees as well as job applicants. Um, the synopsis of it is prohibiting an employer from requesting or requiring that an employee or applicant disclose any username, password, or other means for accessing a personal account or service through specified electronic communications devices, prohibiting an employer from taking or threatening to take specified disciplinary actions for an employee's refusal to disclose specified password and related information, prohibiting an employee from downloading specified information or data, etc. So, SB 433 passed unanimously in the state Senate and HB 964 passed by a wide margin in Congress. Now all that is left for the governor to sign the bill which will make Maryland the first state in the nation to set such a restriction to law, and I'm sure that's not going to be the last one. And the reason why Maryland ended up being the first was um, we were we were talking to us when we were talking about it last uh, last couple of weeks. We wanted to know we, why. We wanted to know why. Who, who, yeah. who, what employers yeah. were asking for this information. And I said apparently this is the state where it all started. In February 2011, Officer Robert Collins told the story of how the Maryland Division of Corrections demanded his Facebook login credentials during a recertification interview. Um, Ooh, that's governmental. So, yeah. So when you're getting at that high of a level, I mean, it's obviously the state level. Um, and it was during a recertification interview. They were recertifying him for a job that he already had. Hmm. Um, it's probably just, a, you know, a, a lot of people have to get recertified on, on certain right. jobs and things like that. Um but because of that, the ACLU jumped in, got his back, um, and they're pushing for it. And, I mean, Maryland's all about it. They're just like, hey, we're going to do this. Um, there are some similar measures are pending in other states, including California, Illinois, and Michigan. Um, furthermore, lawmakers in the House and Senate are also working on a legislation that would ban the practice nationally. So okay. it has come into that, which I totally agree with. I mean, that yeah. just... You know, that's your own personal. Well, the good thing when you when you read that, the good thing was they didn't specify a particular like Facebook social media. Yeah. Because by the time it takes for the bill to get passed, I mean, sometimes Congress is kind of slow, especially even state or federal. So Facebook may be here and gone. Like think if they were think if they had originally done a law on MySpace. Exactly. Then they'd have to come back for Facebook. Yeah. So saying social media yes. does a really good job of making a nice large umbrella. Yeah, and that's very easy to interpret. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it's laid out there, um, you know, and even even talks about prohi- prohibiting an employee from downloading specified information or data. Um, so it's got, you know, both sides of the employer and employee. So it's, it's really good. So Maryland's, cool. Maryland's kind of taking charge there. Yeah, so. yeah, and it makes, and then you know, because I wondered earlier why Maryland, and it makes, it makes sense, sense if yeah. it happened there. But right. I, I'm glad that I found that because I really wanted to know why, what, where it all started from, and yeah, it was at we the were, state level. We were that. looking at that original article, and the original article a couple of weeks ago didn't really point any yeah. fingers. So, yeah, I'm glad we found that out. Yep, inquiring minds wanted to know. <laughs> well, I have an article here, which, I mean, it should sound, it should be like filed in the duh category, but you shouldn't use weak passwords. And you shouldn't yep. use default passwords. Yep. And for anybody out there who's who's not who's not insanely up on technology security, let me just go out there and t- simply tell you that if you go to Walmart and you buy yourself a new router, for example, a new Linksys router, a new Belkin router, 
What we talk about with the default password is the idea that when you bring that home and open that box, it's got instructions in there. And in those instructions, they may tell you what the default password is, the password that was set by the manufacturer. Uh-huh. It's not hard at all for a hacker to go out on the Internet and look for a PDF to that exact same document. So it's very important that when you buy a brand new device, you change the password to something they won't know off the top of their head. Also, you need to make sure you don't change it to your pet's name or your daughter's <laughs> name or where you live. Or your phone number. Or your phone number. Yes, make it hard. Don't make it weak. Don't make it easy, easy to break. And that should sound like common sense. But the problem with this article I have here talks about is, even though it's common sense, weak passwords are still the downfall of the enterprise security. And it says here, a pet's name or your favorite movie just isn't enough. Yeah. So they talk about these type of mistakes are very common. There was a breach just recently of a Medicare server in the Utah Department of Health. And they, the people managed to get in, change the configuration. People had data get compromised. If it's a Medicare server, you know there's medical records there. And they said the breach took place because people were able to use default administrative passwords or easily guessable passwords. So this whole article goes down here on and on and on about all kinds of different places this happened. It happened to the Department of Energy. It happened earlier this month to that global payments company we talked about. I think two weeks ago or so, Josh, we talked about the credit card, the yep. go-between credit card company. Yep. Third party. The exact same third party was able to, to break in through a compromised admin account. And normally this should not be easy. So the article even goes on to say, what should you do? Well, don't just use passwords. <laughs> the bank just doesn't allow me to walk up to an ATM machine and just type in a number and get money. I have to have something and I have to know something. That's what's called two-factor authentication. Sometimes, if you want to get really, really anal attentive, you could be asked to present an ID card, a password you know, and maybe your thumbprint. That's three-factor because mm-hmm. you, can either, you can either present something you know, something you have, like a card, or something you are, like my retina or my thumbprint. And so they say, if we can move to that, it's going to be harder and harder because it's not that easy to cut off my thumb and me not know about it. Yep. But it is easy to guess that my password is my cat's name by looking on on facebook and seeing what my cat's name is not that hard and i have no idea that you found that out but i would have a pretty good idea if my thumb went missing (laughs) so it's all about knowledge is easy to steal but a physical card or your or your retina is kind of harder to steal yeah so they talk about that but so it 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 sounds like the same article but uh, they do bring up an excellent point in here that i want to bring up which is one that that I don't think I often talk about in my security class, but I should talk about it more. And that is, there's also the curse of what they call the reusable password. Okay. And what they're talking about there is they're saying that a lot of these places that got broken into might have been broken into by that hacking group called Anonymous. So if Anonymous breaks in, let's just kind of relate this. Let's say... Hypothetically, Josh, at your house, okay. you use the exact same password on your computer that you use here at MCTC or you use for your bank account or something like that. Okay. You probably don't have nearly the security, maybe, on your home computer that you do here. Yeah. If Anonymous hacks into your home computer because you've downloaded some, some virus from a website, okay. if they get that password, now all they have to do is find, oh, look, Josh has an email address for 
for this other company. Let's try the same password. Yeah. Oh, we're in too. He's using the same password. Ooh, we see that he's gone to his bank website. Let's see if it's the same password. It's the idea that even though in our day and age it's very easy to ask people to use complex passwords, yeah. especially through Windows with group policy, you can require it. We have no way to explain to Windows, this is Josh password, Josh's password on this server, and this is his password on this other server, and make sure, by the way, that they're secure and they're not the same. Yeah. There's no, no mechanism. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a really, really good point. I don't I don't know of a good way to, to explain that because we're talking about your computer system at the house, uh-huh. MCTC's network here, we're talking about a bank website. Why in the world would any of those different disparaging networks be talking to each other to make sure you don't have the same password? Exactly. So it's a very, very common problem that we have and one that that it seems like user education is about the only way we're going to be able to get around. So uh, I thought that was a really good point to bring up. I mean, oh, yeah. the weak password and the default side, that that's kind of like old hat, but definitely the, the idea of the reusable password, how do we combat that? Because that's being the biggest problem right now in a corporate environment. So now, okay. now I'll get off my security uh, security <laughs> soapbox. No, 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 no. That's 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 a really good point because, I mean, especially when you have a lot of different uh, websites and 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 places you're logging in and stuff like that. You know, you really shouldn't use the same password on all of and those. And cookies. What if you and have cookies, cookies on your machine? Yeah, just you know? yeah, just. I mean, I try to tell people to. I mean, I know several people that. They will go through and they'll do a, a clean out of their browsing history and their cookies every evening, which mm-hmm. is something that I try to do as much as I can, as con- you know, as constantly as I can. Sometimes right. every time before I even log off the computer, even if right. I'm going to be back in a couple hours. Right. Um, and it is, you know, it's to that point to where you have to have that fear that, you know, someone might try to steal your information or something like that to, to for people to realize that they need to do that. I've tried my best to, to never get cookies, not not even even from the standpoint that someone could get my password off of that, but, but I, can, I can be forgetful. Yeah. So I need to type it in. If I have that many different passwords, yeah. which I do, <laughs> I, I need I need to constantly type it in so I can remember. Because yeah. if not, if I, if I store it in a cookie on my computer, if I check that check mark on Netflix that says, always remember always me remember. on this, mm-hmm. yeah, then what happens if I reformat that computer in, in a month? Yeah, I didn't always remember it. Exactly. The computer did, so I forgot. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the things that you know—it's so easy with Facebook and some of these places to just say, "Oh yeah, I remember my remember my password for the mm-hmm. next time I log into the computer." But you know, at the same time, like you said, if you're not retyping that in, you're going to forget it anyway. So then, mm-hmm. if something happens and you get hacked, and it's like, "Oh, change password time," right? I don't remember what my original password was. So well, a lot of times that's where even a follow-up to that—if you're worried about forgetting your password. And you've been on Facebook for five or six years. Mm-hmm. Might not be a bad idea when you're in there one day to go and check to see what is the email address you have associated with it. Mm-hmm. Because in five years, you may not even use that old dormant exactly. account. And yeah. if the worst happens and you get hacked or you forget how to get in, it's going to go to an email address you can't even check anymore. Yeah, yeah. you're going to have that sent sent to my email. And oh wait, I don't even use that anymore. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got one here about um, embedding videos can infringe. Copyright according to the MPAA, are your embeds safe? Now, the Mm. story behind this has to do with uh, the ruling in a recent copyright infringement case, Flava versus Gunter, 
as far-reaching ramifications for the future of sharing, especially if the MPAA stops the reversal of the court ruling against myvidster.com. Now, these are companies that I've never heard of, which is probably good. Um, what are we talking about when you say an embed? Embed like um, like Facebook. You can embed video links. Um, you can uh, go to like YouTube. Oh, okay. And you, it says copy this embed or embed this, and it's basically you're able to take this web address essentially that they're giving you, mm-hmm. post it in some sort of embedding um, template that right. a, a website has, mm-hmm. and it kind of like posts that video there, mm-hmm. and it's it's not technically a part of that website. It, right. It's it just plays it plays it there, but it's not really part of it. So that's like how I can watch a YouTube video. On my Facebook exactly. wall. Yeah. Technically, I would have had to go to YouTube, but yeah. somehow I'm seeing it there. Well, and then sometimes you'll see, you'll try to play it. Like somebody will share a video, mm-hmm. and you'll try to play it, and it says embedding disabled for this video or whatever. Oh. And it says, okay, you got to go to YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's because of, you know, you got to go there. And, okay. you know, a lot of that has to do with um, advertising and things like that, too. But, you but know, also, I mean, to. it just, that, that definition brings up the <coughs> point that we are viewing YouTube content. On Facebook. On, a, on another website. Yeah. yeah. So, um, basically, this, uh, the ruling, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's about a pornogra- pornography entertainment company. I suppose they're the Flava. Flava. Not the, not the Gunther. Well, they're, they're, I guess they both are. Oh, but, I see. Uh, one of them, um, basically there's this, there's this website called My Vidster. Okay. Apparently. And it's it's just an all around uh, video web, just a video website. It's like a it's like a YouTube type site, but it's they actually allow um, pornography and things like that to be shared on their website. Okay. But the the real story behind it is the fact that they're saying that um, this company Flava had videos and people were posting it and embedding it on this my vidster sharing video website okay and they were saying hey you know you can't do that that's you're infringing on our copyright thing and um because they're not giving not giving the right people the credit for it and that kind of thing you're not um and after someone would share it on there mm-hmm. if, the, if it got reshared it wasn't pointing back to the Flava company. It was pointing yeah. back to the Vidster. Almost feels like plagiarism, kind of. Kind of, I guess that's what it is. Um, but basically, what it comes down to is, is that because of this court ruling thing, um, the MPAA has stepped in and said, um, you know, we're we're supporting the Flava interca- Entertainment Company with its, <laughs> you know, fight against this um, My Vidster because right. My Vidster is trying to get it overruled um, and and say, hey, we don't, we're not doing this. So the big question surrounding it is when you're embedding videos on, you know, just regular sites on right. Facebook, things like that, mm-hmm. are you actually infringing on copyrights? Wow. And so they're saying this one case is probably going to open up a huge can of worms. And it's even getting as far into what they're calling browser infringement, where if your computer, kind of like what we were just talking about with cookies and stuff, automatically caches a copy of a photo. Mm-hmm. Off of a website that is, let's just say, Associated copyrighted. Press mm-hmm. copyrighted. Right. If it saves that onto your computer, mm-hmm. excuse me, in your you know temporary internet files or whatever like that, are you actually um, infringing copyright because you're 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 taking a copy of it down onto your computer, even if you're not sharing it back out? Right. So um, 
this one little hmm. case, um, which, you know, they're saying, hey, you caused us to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars because people were viewing them here and not here um, because you were, you were allowing them to share them. Uh, basically, it's coming into a big old uh, can of worms with uh, copyright infringement and browser infringement and well, all kinds of things. First, I find it quite interesting that the MPAA is supporting a pornography website. I always thought they were, you know, in the movies, not for that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I get, I get the point, but that's just kind of a little jab at them. Oh yeah. But, um, but then also, websites like Funny or Die, when they yep. post videos, mm-hmm. they usually kind of watermark them in the bottom right hand corner. It says funnyordie.com. So even if someone has has downloading software, like something like Download Helper that they've downloaded to put into to Firefox. Okay. If they download the clip, it's still tagged. Yes. Or maybe yes. like maybe QuickTime or DivX files will be tagged. So maybe they could do that. And and I really ultimately I have to guess my assumption is that this this uh pornography website must have been a paid site. Someone got in probably and they got in through their membership yeah. and then they were able to start they knew where the actual file was located and well, based on that they were able to tag it I out. I guess what it what it's saying is it's free. Uh, you can bookmark and post videos on the site for free. Right. Or you can pay $40 per year, save backup copies of the videos onto its servers. Oh. So I think there's where it ultimately right. uh, run into problems. But essentially, they give them uh, the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, in accordance with that, they mm-hmm. gave them a big takedown, takedown notice where they had to pull all those sites and stuff. Or I all mean, those pages off. Regardless of, of the nature of the video, it is the idea that if you're not going to the original site, you're not seeing all the pop-ups that are supporting them. Yeah. Although I, although I would have to think, however they get sold with regards to that, yeah. I imagine that viewing of the video still gets counted. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know how they've got it all broken down. It doesn't go into, it goes into some detail, but it doesn't go into a lot. I mean, we we, we have it posted on, on our Twitter, but um, you can read more there, but it's got a lot of links off of it, but... I mean, it's a very interesting, you know, controversial yeah. type of thing to pull up. And I up. think, you know, the, I think the biggest thing that it's having to do with is just overall embedding of, right. of videos on any site. It just happened to start with the biggest internet money-making thing, which is pornography. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's where it's starting at, and it'll just trickle down from there. Hmm. So, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that is that is very interesting. Um I have a I have one. I wouldn't say it's a follow up, but it's not like a brand new thing out and about. Some people may be familiar with what's called ransomware. Okay. If you're not familiar with ransomware, uh, let me just say that basically, it's when a hacker creates a virus or a worm or some sort of malicious software you download, basically malware, and on your computer it doesn't necessarily delete files, but it may hold your computer hostage. It may hold your programs hostage. It may try to tell you, oh, you have 19 viruses on your machine. Would you like us to clean this? If you want to, just click this button and give us forty nine ninety nine. Mm-hmm. I think one of the famous ones back in the day was called Antivirus 2000. Okay, yeah, definitely. And oh, so it would, it would keep computers. on popping up a box and saying, you know, you've got such and such virus, delete this. And people would go ahead and pay the money thinking they had the virus when, in fact, it could have been a hacker just blowing smoke. Well, they've gotten very, very inventive as of as of late, and this one article I have here talks about a new strain or a new variant of random uh, a ransomware that prevents Windows from starting. 
I had heard of one where basically it would run BitLocker on your machine and completely encrypt your machine uh-huh. and say, if you want the password, pay us so pay much us money. money. This one goes ahead and says that they replace your master boot record, which the master boot record is what's used to point to your Windows hard drive so it can boot up the machine. Yes. It replaces that with their own little program that displays a little message for you asking you for money. And if you give them money, supposedly the idea is they'll go ahead and put the master boot record back for you. But if you don't give them money, the idea is your machine's now worthless because you can't boot up to it. Now, I feel sure you could probably pull your hard drive and put it into another machine yeah. as a secondary hard drive. But still, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah. And oh, yeah. so these people are going after maybe non-techies trying to go ahead and, and scare them into paying them money uh, so they can go ahead and do that. So this was... This is ingenious. I mean, it's malicious. I'll give yes. you that. But it's definitely yes. an ingenious way that someone has tried to find to make money off off of people. Yep. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting. So I went ahead and talked about it here and, of course, posted it on our Twitter page, too. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I got another uh, another article here about, um, it says, Google fined $25,000 for willfully stonewalling the FCC. Now, when I first saw that, I had to reread it because $25,000... In Google money is not very much. Yeah, so that's dropping that's a, bucket. a drop in the bucket. So I had to reread it, of course. But basically, what's happened is in 2010, late 2010, Google admitted that it had inadvertently collected unsuspecting people's information. Um, what was happening was they were driving around with their Street View Google Maps car. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Google and you go to their maps and you're looking at directions or whatever. You can zoom in really close and see, like, what, what is the street view. And basically, they have this car that they were driving around, and it would just take pictures and at random points down the road and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, all along the way, um, they were able to capture information from unencrypted, um, unprotected wi- people's Wi-Fis, down, you know, down mm-hmm. the road. And they're saying it was accidental and that they didn't use any of the information. Well, um uh, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, uh, basically said that, hey, you need to um, give us this information. We're investigating this because, you know, obviously you were not supposed to do this. Well, they're saying Google deliberately impeded and delayed the investigation by failing to respond to information requests. Uh, Google apparently willfully and repeatedly violated commission orders to produce certain information and documents that the commission required for its investigation. And you got to remember, this all came in you know, mid to late 2010, so this has been a couple right. of years going. And um, they said that Google had, uh, it, that its data collection cars had mistakenly downloaded so-called payload data, and that's snippets of information sent over the Internet, from Internet users who were logged onto unprotected wireless networks in range of its cars. That data could include emails, instant messages, usernames, and passwords. Uh, Google apologized for it and said that it never used the personal information it collected. It also said that it deleted the information. But it said when the FCC tried to gather information for their investigation, Google was not cooperating at all with it. Um, uh, Google provided just five documents, including a copy of its software code that was so poorly documented that the FCC said it was impossible to know where the redactions occurred. Um... And Google just kept fighting against them. And basically, um, because of all the hoops Google made the FCC jump through, the agency hit the company with the maximum penalty available, which is only a $25,000 fine. So that's why it was so small. Exactly. It was the maximum available for that um, 
so you know so-called actions that they were taking. Um, Google objects to the ruling, saying that they didn't you know they didn't have to do with do with what they did, and um, but you know it's a it's a little interesting um, story, and it says is the second U.S. regulator to probe Google for its Street View data collection. Oopsie, the Federal Trade Commission closed its investigation of the issue in October 2010 without taking any action against Google. Um, And then in November, which I didn't know about this, Google implemented a way for people to opt out of having their router surveyed at all. I do remember hearing about that. Okay, so I didn't even know that. I didn't didn't hear about that, and that's probably news that just slid right by me. But um, it's interesting that uh, with these Street View cars that they were also uh, data data collecting they're basically war driving yeah they're war driving as they're going along here taking pictures doing all the street mm-hmm. view yeah. um it's almost like they're they're basically not secretly but they're mm-hmm. war driving going along anything that's unprotected unencrypted they're taking those bits of data and they're saying they're not using them and that they were taken accidentally right. but for them to s- come out and say that you have a way of opting out of getting your router surveyed right makes you wonder you know if they're just surveying to see, oh, if there's protection on it, but then they're also taking information, so... Yeah, I mean, just probably driving around with, with uh, Net Stumbler or yeah, just, Air Snort and just... Just something go, simple. Going to town. Yeah. Well, you know, um, when you were talking about that, I just tweeted a uh, another another website. There's a website called W-I-G-L-E, so maybe Wiggle or Weigel, but that's short for Wireless Geographic Logging Engine. And that's a place where you can go to and you can see the entire U.S. You can see a map of, like, the hot spots of where they have wireless activity. And uh, oh, wow. it's very, very neat. They have over 60 million Wi-Fi setups there. Uh, they have over 100 or a 1.3 million cellular networks. So maybe Google's trying to create something like this. Maybe they want to make it to where you can go ahead and go to a website and actually see um, where the local hotspot is near you. Because I've actually gone here one time in the security class to see around my house where where the wireless hotspots they could they could sense are, and um, they didn't see mine luckily. So mine's not out there being advertised. But uh, it's a very it's a very neat site, and I'm yeah. sure there's other sites where people post even their other war drives. You could probably Google that online, but. Yeah, it kind of seems like it's odd, like you said, that Google, out of one side of their mouth, says, we didn't mean to collect this data, but out of the other side, they're allowing you to sign for an opt-out. Yeah. So it kind of seems like, really, why are you asking for an opt-out? It kind of means you're doing it. So that's very interesting. Well, I have kind of, uh, here for the last article, I kind of have a a Google-related article in as much as it's Microsoft trying to find a way to take Google on. There was an article that, that came up actually about a week ago, but of course we didn't do any articles uh, on our last interview when we did the, the interview with Scott Nicholas, but I really wanted to bring come back to this one. Microsoft bought a ton of patents oh, from okay. AOL. Yeah. They ended up buying more than 800 patents from AOL for a cool $1.1 billion. So the headline here is Microsoft buys Netscape web patents from AOL to attack Google. So originally everyone said, oh, they just bought a whole bunch of patents from AOL. wasn't until later, wasn't until this guy reported on it, that they mentioned, oh, by the way, they bought Netscape stuff. 
Now, a lot of people may say, who's Netscape? <laughs> because depending on how old you are, you may have yeah. no clue who Netscape is. But Netscape was the first commercial web browser. Uh, the guy, uh, Mark Andreessen, I think, was in, was in uh, Champaign, Illinois. And they created um, the Mosaic Project, uh-huh. which became yeah. Mozilla, basically. But Mosaic, he couldn't sell that because that was, that was developed through a governmental grant. So he left and went ahead and created Netscape. And so Netscape was really big. Eventually, IE came along in an explorer. Netscape made you pay for it from a business standpoint. Microsoft said, let's give it away for free. Yep. They were really good at that. Yep. And eventually, um, eventually, there was a giant uh, court case where Netscape was trying to say Microsoft had antitrust things. Now Microsoft owns, or is going to in the next couple of days, own the Netscape patents. So the question is, why? Why yep. would they buy that? Yeah. Well, if people dig, they'll learn that uh, Netscape, as a company, owned the intellectual properties for a lot of things. One of them being JavaScript. Oh, wow. Another one of them being cookies. And a third one being something that has to be used every day, SSL. So So Microsoft will (laughs) own the patents or the intellectual property that is JavaScript, cookies, and SSL. Wow. And at this point... Back in 97, when Netscape went ahead and patented Secure Socket Layer, they went ahead and said they had no plans to start charging for this. Yeah. They didn't have any plans. No. But Microsoft bought it. Microsoft may have plans to start yeah. charging. So, I mean, it, it, could be as, it could be so crazy that Microsoft's like, oh, you still want to use SSL? We need to pony up licensing for mm-hmm. it. And they could come back on them in that way. So, it seems like Microsoft is trying to go ahead and strategically position themselves to go ahead and build a work against Google and oh, yeah. Chrome yeah. because you know since Google has Chrome now they have a lot of their own patents they can yes. go ahead and put in there a lot of their own technologies their own security when Microsoft owns SSL that's going to kind of be a pretty big upper hand yeah so yeah. Uh, it could really it could really be an interesting patent lawsuit and a lot of people are actually getting really scared by this because when Microsoft wanted to buy these there was going to have to be an 18 day wait like the FCC kind of yes. had to kind of yes. had to have a ruling in it, and so at this point, a lot of people were thinking there was going to be a lawsuit that popped up about it. Mm-hmm. So the weird thing was, you for you you look back to when Netscape was suing Microsoft, and there was a large court battle. Now there's a large court battle probably going to be happening because Microsoft wants to buy Netscape. Yeah, so yeah. It's like can't live with them, can't live exactly. without them. But people were. People are kind of wondering out there if Microsoft is then going to turn the table on all these industry standards that still have patents. Yeah. Well, I, I had no idea that something like JavaScript, JavaScript <laughs> yes. was owned by Netscape. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I'll be honest. I didn't even know Netscape still existed in yes. that sense. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, they don't technically because AOL hasn't been working on the Netscape browser for several years yeah, at yeah, this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, basically the Netscape code, which got its legs from uh, the Mosaic project, yeah. is what kind of founded Firefox. Exactly. Mozilla okay. came out of that. So, but, uh, but yes, it was Netscape who, Netscape who came up with the JavaScript. Wow. And they were really nice back and in the day. And that's used mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. a lot, yeah, a lot of websites. Yes, very much so. And, well, especially SSL. Yeah. Now, oh a, a lot of people are moving to uh, to TIA, TLS, Transport Layer Security. So Microsoft may not quite have the, the cards there, but um, they still, if this goes through, might be very, very interesting uh, what a rivalry war is going to look like between Microsoft as a browser company and Google as a browser company. So. Well, 
Very interesting. interesting. <laughs> well, that's the stories we have for you all this week. Uh, we'd like to go ahead and get into our interview. Uh, just to kind of set it up for you, today we have an interview with another former MCTC student by the name of Bob Maynard. Uh, Bob was one of my former Microsoft students who is now continuing his education over at Marshall in the geography department, getting a GIS degree. And uh, hopefully, if you're interested in GIS, Bob will be able to tell you about his experiences he's had over there and tell you about how wonderful he, he finds the classes over there and at least maybe shed some more light for you on all the wonderful things he gets to do with GIS in his, in his job as well as in his, uh, his education over there. Today I have sitting with me here um, Mr. Bob Maynard, who is a former student of mine here at MCTC. Hello, Bob. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Pretty good. And we're going to talk to Bob about uh, how he came here to Mount West, um, what he decided to, to do class-wise here, and what he's doing now to further his education and his IT career. So, Bob, I guess the first question is, um, what what made you show up here at, uh, at MCTC? The long story short, Patrick, mm-hmm. late 2008, right I guess you could say amid the worst part of the economic downturn, or at least the initial parts of the economic downturn, mm-hmm. I was working for Toyota in Buffalo, uh-huh. uh, helping to manufacture transmissions there. Um, I was part of what they called a variable workforce, mm-hmm. uh, which basically means I was a temporary contract employee. Right. Uh, again, t- uh, late 2008, when the uh, downturn uh, began to become pronounced, mm-hmm. um, our production cut back drastically. Uh, my contract expired. I was let go and decided I was going to further my education, and that's when I came to MCTC. Okay. Before before coming here, um, I'm assuming you immediately went into IT. Did you have any previous experience with computers? Was it was it a hobby for you, or, or did you just think, you know, this is probably a place I'm going to be able to go to, f- to find a really good job? I had... Uh, again, a long story short, I had previous experience with IT. I mm-hmm. graduated from what was then Marshall Community and Technical College in the spring of 97. Right. So it's us, but we had to be renamed. Correct. Yeah. Right. Same same entity, just mm-hmm. in a different wrapper, so to speak. So right. uh, I did have a, a two-year degree from the community college. Mm-hmm. Um, by, I think it was February 98, I had a, an IT job with the state, an entry-level job. Oh, okay. And worked with the state for several years and decided that I want to kind of uh, broaden my horizons. And again, life experience kind of kicks in, and I found myself uh, taking a job with, with Toyota. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's good money when you got it, so definitely definitely going that route. Um, so when you came back, what was your, I guess, compared to when you got your degree in 96, um, Tell us, if you would, like what you got that in, and then was that you trying to retrain when you came back then in um, uh, roughly 2008, 2009? Well, the degree that I gained in 97 uh, mm-hmm. was um, a uh, associate's degree, as I mentioned, a two-year degree mm-hmm. in, in computer technology. Okay. Uh, in a nutshell, that was basically a generalized uh, computer degree, right. um, IT uh, support desktop support right learn how to uh, install software upgrade software mm-hmm. work on the hardware uh, on, 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 a, on a PC level right uh, troubleshooting PC support was basically what it what it amounted to okay. a good degree learned quite a bit because I had no 
PC experience up to that point. Right. And again, uh, it didn't uh, relatively it didn't take me that long to to jump into the workforce with with state government. So right. It was a profitable degree, a very generalized degree, uh, but again, it it, it uh, uh, I was able to gain employment with the degree mm-hmm. and gain a lot of experience through the employment. Um, so again, uh, through life experience, the ups and downs that we all we all experience. Right. Um, I find myself back at MCETC, which is Mount West Community Technical College now. Right. Um, and I decided that I wanted to expand upon my technical experience and my technical education. And that's when I decided to go ahead and pursue both the uh, Cisco certification route and uh, also the uh, Microsoft uh, Network Administration route here at MCTC. Okay. Well, you know, I was, I was thinking about when you were talking about that, you said you got your degree in 97. Um, I was coming through just a little bit after you. And so the Microsoft option that you ended up taking for me didn't even come about until uh, 99. So at that time when you originally got that, that wasn't an option. But I'm sure if it was, you'd have, you'd have jumped right on it. But coming back, you went ahead and went through uh, our Cisco option and our Microsoft option. Did you find at any point when you were working through those that that you decided, oh, you know, this is great, but but I want to see what's over here or, or play with this or play with that. Did you deviate any, basically, while you were here at MCTC? I did. There was a, a fairly, what I consider to be a fairly significant deviation. Uh, Dr. Jones, uh, who is here at mm-hmm. MCTC, yeah. uh, came to me, called me into his office one day and made me aware of a four-year uh, STEM degree, which is science, technology, engineering and math mm-hmm. uh or it's not a degree i'm sorry but a scholarship that was offered through the science department the trailblazer scholarship right correct? the trailblazer scholarship mm-hmm. that was offered uh, uh through the science department at, at marshall university and um i had decided i talked to my wife done some soul searching so to speak and decided that instead of working on the technology supporting the technology i wanted to do something with the technology mm-hmm and that's when I decided to make use. Uh, I applied for and was awarded uh, a scholarship mm-hmm. through the Trailblazers program. And that's when I decided to uh, go to the geography program uh, department there at Marshall and uh, pursue a degree in geography that was uh, GIS uh, intensive. Okay. Well, because previously uh, we've had a, we had a previous interview with Jay Jones, and and he he kind of took the same path you did by going with the Trailblazers scholarship to continue his four year. Although he decided to go over to the science department and do the integrated science technology. So in your case, you decided to go over and and start working on the GIS side of things. So we'd previously talked to Dr. Jones about the GIS, and he kind of laid it out for us. Um, But I'm curious what your take is on on that as a student and now as a practitioner of using the product. What type of skills do you need to go into a GIS program or take a GIS class? GIS, um, well, that's that's kind of an involved question, but <laughs> <laughs> but really, there, as one might imagine, there's, uh, and I'm not trying to be funny or, or humorous here, but there's there's a lot of geography involved. There's a lot of uh, of uh, oh, how do I say it? You learn how to research, and you learn how to analyze problems. Mm-hmm. And you learn how to take real-world raw data, digitize it, bring it into that 
GIS realm, mm-hmm. uh, store it on a database, mm-hmm. uh, use the GIS to, to crunch the numbers, uh, to analyze the data you put in, and, you know, depending on what problem you're, you're working on, uh, to, to, to spit out those analyses and those results. And then mm-hmm. uh, you look at those, your team, you know, again, whatever the, the workflow is, uh, you look at that and, and you use that, that GIS analysis to, uh, to solve some real-world problems. I guess ultimately, probably to, to hit back on what you were trying to say is, is um, anybody who is ever developing a database for somebody, they have to go to that particular customer and understand what's important about the data. Absolutely, yeah, it's definitely customer centric. Um, that's one of the first things you find out in in IT support, or really um, to some extent in any IT role, is that what fits for one company or one customer. Um, the entirety of that product rarely fits for every customer. There might be uh, bits and pieces that work for everyone, but uh, again, you're not going to take one product or one service and meet the needs of everybody uh, that you come in contact with from a customer standpoint. Right. Well, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is when you said that there's a lot of geography to it, I think <clears throat> what I'm thinking about is that for you to design the database, you have to you have to realize what part of the geography is important. And so just if I was going to an accounting department and, I, and they want me to design a database, I would, even without probably knowing it too much, I would start to learn an awful lot about accounting by creating the database they want because I have to look at the business needs that particular employer wants. So I guess what you were trying to say was there's an awful lot of, of geography built into this because you have to think about what this information means when you put it into a database and how it gets applied. And so the geography side comes out in that. Exactly. And, that, and that's one of the things, if I'm understanding your, your question correctly, mm-hmm. um, that's one of the things I like about GIS is it's not, it's not centered on one specific uh, job or idea or, mm-hmm. or uh, function. Mm-hmm. Uh, GIS is useful in marketing. Mm-hmm. It's useful in hazard uh, prediction, hazard mitigation, um, there's just a, n- a number of things that you can use GIS for, and, and mm-hmm. that's right. When, when you're in a GIS field, you, you, you learn about a lot more than just GIS. Right. Uh, I've been working with a gentleman from Charleston. He's an engineer from Charleston. Mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate to uh, be able to work with him, and we're doing uh, back to the hazard mitigation and the mm-hmm. hazard prediction. We're working on uh, uh, flood prediction uh, using GIS. And so I learned, you know, as an example, I learned more about uh, flooding and uh, uh, FEMA information, FEMA data, and how they gauge floods and how they predict floods and and the data that they store and how to reference that data and how to use it uh, in a GIS prediction of of, Mm. of that that type. So, yeah, anytime I've learned quite a bit. And, and again, I've been doing some work with uh, natural resource management. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, there I've jumped out of the realm of, of flood prediction and flood mm-hmm. mitigation over to, well, how do we find these resources? And once we do, what's the best way to extract them? Uh, you know, how do, how do we figure out what infrastructure we need to, uh, to make that extraction feasible and so on and so forth? So you do learn uh, quite a bit other than just the, the, uh, the basics of GIS. Right. That's what I found intriguing about it, and that's what I really like about right. it. Right. Well, I mean, I guess... Um, while I'm talking to you, I'm trying to think of skills a person would need. It, it does seem like, from everything you're saying, 
a person needs to have skills in how to create and manage a database. But more importantly, when, when a customer comes up to you and says, I want to know about the, uh, the, the climatology data that goes along with this particular area, it's going to be up to you to understand how to write a query to do that. And that's really where your knowledge of the geographic, the climatology, the, the natural resource information really comes into play. Because you're, not, you're much more than a data inputter. You have to be able to massage that data to bring back information that, that actually explains something to that end user. So that's where you probably learned what a floodplain was. And so then you then know how to write a query that goes ahead and, and build a, to, to use that particular criteria to say, well, this number and higher is a floodplain area and this number and lower is not. Right. You got you to gotta learn how to, to smartly use that data to bring out information. Yeah, and I can give you a, another example. Um, you know, when you're looking at maybe you want to figure out a, a particular animal's habitat mm-hmm. and this particular animal, you know, whatever it may be, likes to live at an elevation of a thousand feet and higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particular animal likes to live in herbaceous areas uh, with a particular uh, soil type. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you're looking at a snail or a lizard or a frog or something like that. And then you take the data, you, you, you can get that data into a database and manipulate that <clears throat> within a GIS and, and find where those particular uh, aspects intersect and then you can draw that out of the GIS, out of the database database mm-hmm. in a form that's going to be visually recognizable to the person who's interested in it. So yeah, right. you, you have to take that data, um, know how to get those golden nuggets out of there so to speak and and present those to the people that want the information well because i think i think a lot of people that might be listening to this might say that they understand how a pie chart is very very helpful more so than just looking at raw numbers everything in gis comes back to like you said bringing back that raw data and then showing it on a map or showing an area map so it's even more than just being a normal picture that's a a representation there's no longer just a pie chart that goes look how big this wedge is this shows an actual area as to where a habitat would be so it's even smarter than what a normal pie chart could go ahead and bring you back yeah we i'm sorry we we, we can take this data and there's so many things you can do with it and a gis software is is much more than and it's definitely part of it to to display the data in a map format, mm-hmm. but it's much more than just uh, a pretty picture on a slide. Uh, the GIS software that that I'm familiar with, which is ArcGIS from from Esri, mm-hmm. uh, you can you can analyze, you can input data, you can analyze crime hotspots, you can uh, analyze, uh, let's say, uh, power plant emissions, uh, given a you know a coordinate on the Earth. Uh, where that power plant resides and you can analyze uh, where that plume from that emission stack Mm -hmm. is going to end up based on wind direction wind speed Uh, so there's a dispersal you know aspect and and there's just it's so powerful in so many different realms Mm -hmm. Uh, and and that's why a common theme that you'll you'll hear in gis circles is you can learn a lot of gis but you'll never learn it all and and again that's what i like because you had the opportunity to keep learning and keep expanding your knowledge base. Right. So yeah, there's there's definitely an aspect of uh, 
knowing what to do with the data once you once you've got it right well i mean just even from the different varied topics you've been talking about it seems like there could be aspects of criminal justice to it there could be aspects of um of environmental safety to it and those are whole those are whole four-year degrees on their own so like you say there's there's whole completely different um core areas that you'll be learning about so that that's very very awesome um, so I'm, I'm curious, when you moved from our, from our two-year up to Marshall's four-year, what areas do you think were most helpful for you? I mean, I, it sounds like you're having to do a lot of database information, but were there certain skills that you found? Like if maybe someone's listening to this and someone says, you know, I like to constantly be learning about different areas too, what do you think were the prereq skills that you needed or at least the experience that was helpful before you went over to the GIS program? Well, I'm going to throw a plug in for the MCTC experience that I have, um, but honestly, I think a critical component to take with you or to have with you when you go into the GIS field is, is to have a good solid IT background. Um, because really when you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're working with the GIS, uh, it's it's like everything else is these days. It's very computer and IT intensive, uh, mm-hmm. database intensive, uh, server intensive, storage intensive. So it's it's good to have a good solid background in knowing what these things are, mm-hmm. how they operate, what they do, um, and that way, when you when you get to the table and you start using a GIS, and someone tells you, well, we need you to create. Uh, a shape file and we need you to store it in this database and we need you to connect to this server and so on and so forth those type of things then you have that background you know they're not speaking greek you know what they're talking about you can kind of hit the ground running and spend less time working on the it side of it and then start to learn the gis uh, itself it also seems like when we when we talk to dr jones about the gis program one of the classes mentioned that there's a there's a web server that has to be implemented. Is that correct? Well, you can um, again if you think Google Earth, mm-hmm. uh, Yahoo. Oh, I, I see. And, and those are just two those are two of the major um, web servers that 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 come to mind. But if you look at the uh, West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection, uh, the U.S. Uh, EPA, again, just a couple of examples. There are numerous uh, web server web GIS servers out there. And uh, that is part, that's an optional course that you can take, and that is part of the GIS program there at uh, Marshall. I I just, I mean, I was just thinking, like, database would help, some networking would help, definitely maybe some uh, information about how to run a web server or how to configure one would probably be helpful if you go that route. But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I had never uh, put together the fact that when they're going to be talking about a web server, they were talking about how that Google Maps or MapQuest or Google Earth worked, but that, that makes sense because I'm seeing all that GIS data. What I'm seeing is, is from global positioning satellites, but I'm still seeing it put all together for me, stitched all together on a web page. Well, what it, you know, what it all boils down to, as we, we, we talked about a minute ago, is, is you know, what your customer wants, what the end user mm-hmm. wants, and more and more, um, that's web-based. And in order to, to put it out on the web and for it to be valuable for people in remote locations, wherever that may be, you know, at home or, you know, on an iPhone or an iPad out in the field somewhere, it has to be web-based. And uh, so uh, what you're seeing is a lot of GIS moving more towards uh, the website of things. And 
again, you need qualified, skilled programmers to make that happen. So you have the folks like me that, that create the data. We create the layers. We, we create the, um, the analyses that the customer wants. But the guys on the programming end, they actually are responsible for displaying that to the customer. So uh, it's a team approach, definitely. Okay, okay. Well, um, at this point, so you're you're working through your four-year degree over there right now with GIS. Correct. I'm a senior, yep. You're a senior. So have you started looking out there for, for possibilities to what to where you may want to go or what you may want to do, like Monster.com, places like that? Right now, uh, I'm sure we're all familiar with the job sites that are out there, Dice.com, mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned, Monster.com, so on and so forth. A lot of GIS jobs out there and a lot of good-paying four-year GIS jobs out there. And, and for me personally, uh, right now, and this may change, but right now I'm looking for something uh, in a natural resource, or excuse me, the uh, uh, coal, oil, gas okay. field. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of pipeline mapping, natural mm-hmm. resource mapping that goes on. I'd say that's going to be really big coming up soon with the Marcellus Shell yep. here in West Virginia, and I think also going up into Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania as well. Ohio. Yeah. Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm working with RTI right now, and they're starting to explore uh, GIS data in relation to the Marcellus Shell mm-hmm. and uh, how we can uh, manipulate that data and use that data to better serve uh communities around the state rti uh ray hall transportation the, the ray hill transportation institution which is which is here uh on huntington's campus correct yes it's in the old 20th street bank well actually yeah well it's the old 20th street bank location and they do work closely with marshall um and again i'm, I'm working with them as a as a uh, i am a four-year student but they technically mm-hmm. call me a grad assistant so right. i'm helping them with some of their work but uh a lot of interesting stuff well, I know. I know when you went through our two-year degrees, um, you say a lot of the a lot of the experience that you got here helped. I know that when you went through the Microsoft side, you definitely got a lot of certifications on our side. Um, I'm not as familiar whether you went and got the CCNA maybe on on Jack's side for the Cisco. But I, what I was curious about was someone listening to this, someone hearing that you're saying that it's good to have the experience to go through this. I was curious when you were looking out there if you found that for this particular area, GIS, do you find that they're wanting a four-year degree in GIS, and do they also mention any certifications? Uh, I'm I'm curious if the certifications are paying off for you in that respect or more the experience. In the the respect of of an employer looking for a GIS analyst with Mm -hmm. Microsoft certifications, I'm just going to be honest with you. I haven't seen that as of yet in any of the job. Uh, that that I've seen that I've been exposed to, right? Uh, but I, I, again, going back to what I said earlier, for a person going into the GIS field, they mm-hmm. have to. I mean, you're going to get the experience one way or the other, right? You're going to get your baptism by fire when you go into the program. You're, you're going to you're going to be doing double duty. You're going to be learning GIS and you're going to be learning computers, mm-hmm. or you can. You know, fortunately, I came through the MC. MCTC program and had a, a very solid IT background and again you know I didn't have to worry about learning the computer side of it I could mm-hmm. just focus on GIS and use the IT skills that I already uh, brought in-house with me so okay uh, yeah I mean it, it's not so much that you'll see it in a job description right but you have to have there's no getting around it you have to have that solid 
right. IT background. Well, I mean, I didn't know. Like I say, I'm I'm a person that teaches the network the the networking side of things for Microsoft. So, uh, I I didn't know if that would be helpful. I would think maybe. I'm sure probably um, Esri might have some certifications for the Arc server. Is they that do. What, is what's called Arc Serve? They do. Well, the Arc GIS is Arc the GIS. generalized term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm sure in that case you could go ahead and, and pursue those, and those would definitely help you out. And uh, I knew computer networking was a little bit off off the board from GIS, but I was just curious. I'd never looked at the, the market out there to see. Well, again, uh, I'm sure – that there are jobs out there, mm-hmm. again, database management mm-hmm. and, and you're dealing with the GIS. Because mm-hmm. um, you've definitely, Microsoft does have a SQL Server, right. um, and Oracle definitely has Oracle certifications too, depending on which, which database you use. So again, I mean, I would encourage anyone that, that is considering GIS, mm-hmm. uh, really, because I, I've seen it in my tenure with Marshall going through this program that there are folks that come in and they're really interested in GIS, mm-hmm. but honestly they struggle because at the same time they're trying to learn. Uh, they don't have a, 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 a solid IT background. Right. Um, and again, when, when, you're, when your supervisor or your instructor comes in and they start talking about a database or a network server or the cloud or, you know, just they start throwing around these IT terms and people just don't have a clue. Right. And I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, we all come from different backgrounds, but I'm just saying that, that I'm very thankful and I'm very happy that I've got that, that IT background from MCTC before mm-hmm. I went into this program. Okay. Well, and yeah, I agree with you. There are little pockets. It seems like we have like three pockets. You have graphic design people who are really creative. You have the programming people who are really logical or database people. And then you have the networking people who, who have to kind of serve both masters in that regards or at least needs to have really good communication skills to pick out what a what a non-techie is explaining how they want their network to be so having all those before you go in could be very helpful because yeah people may be great database people but you throw them into say send this over to this file over to this server and they know programming they don't they don't know the networking side so that's very very interesting well bob i really appreciate you coming in and talking to us because um that really helped open my eyes a bit more to all the different aspects you get with GIS and all the different areas. Uh, Dr. Jones, he did a pretty good job of explaining it to us, but I mean, just just with the amount of stuff you've been working on here while still in school, uh, I think that shows that GIS, like you said, could be an exciting degree option and a, a workplace where one week you may be learning about natural resources and going ahead and putting that type of stuff in, and then the next week you're talking about doing crime statistics. You're always going to be learning about different little areas outside of the normal IT realm. And so. again, yeah, that's that's what I like about it. I'm the type of guy, I've, I've never been <laughs> diagnosed with ADHD, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I say this in a humorous way. I think maybe I've I've got a touch of it, but I don't like to sit in one place figuratively. Right. Uh, I don't like to sit in one place too long, and uh, that's what's really, as you said, exciting about GIS, that you, if you put yourself out there and you make the effort, you're going to learn some exciting things in in a lot of different realms of study, um, and and the more you learn. Uh, the more marketable, the more important, the more valuable you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's uh, there's more than one positive way to to, to look at uh, the um, 
the experience that you gain with GIS. And right. It's just it's an exciting field, and and I and I love it. I really okay. do. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it. Thank you. So I hope you all enjoy the interview. I have to say that when Bob talked about a lot of the wonderful things he was doing over there, it really opened my eyes even more so uh, to what GIS offers somebody. It seems like with the GIS field, as Dr. Jones said previously and as well as, as Bob had reiterated, it seems like you can learn new information each and every day from every project you get to do. So I kind of envy him because as a networking guy, I get to install networks all the time. I know my stuff. I'm not learning as much new information like he is each and every day in a completely different field each and every day. So if that sounds like the type of adventure you would like to have in a job, maybe you want to go out and, and look up a community college or university in your area that offers a GIS program. Well, that's going to do it for this week for us. As usual, we want to remind you all that if you have any questions or comments or great articles that we've missed that you think we should talk about, you're more than welcome to tweet us uh, on Twitter. We are Talk on Tech MCTC. And also, um, we've, we've been failing to announce it, but we also have a, a, a Gmail account. If you'd like to go ahead and send us an email, maybe you're not a Twitter person, our email is just simply talkontech at gmail.com. So just to reemphasize, we're talkontech at gmail.com for our email. But for our Twitter, we are Talk on Tech MCTC. Somebody already had that Talk on Tech Twitter account, so we couldn't get that one. But for this week, I'm Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a great week, everyone.